This episode of Beyond Aporia originated in the Howenstein Center's webcast, Lunch and Learn with Gleaves, available at www.gvsu.edu slash hc. Welcome to Lunch and Learn. I'm your host, Gleaves Whitney. During our quarantine, we may not be able to journey beyond our homes, but that should not stop us from journeying beyond our minds. Today, we travel to the world created by Shakespeare's imagination. Now, a lot of us were exposed to his plays in high school and college, but as we've gotten older, perhaps we have come to appreciate Shakespeare even more. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to learn from a PhD who has also performed Shakespeare? Well, today's guest, Dr. Gregory Dykhaus, is the real deal. He teaches at Black River Public School in Holland, Michigan, and he knows his bard. One of his favorite plays is The Merchant of Venice, which is much to say that is relevant to our students and to our current economic distress. My conversation with Greg will go about 30 minutes, followed by questions from our viewers. Our goal is not to go longer than 45 minutes, so feel free to begin sending your questions right away using the Zoom toolbar to do so. Greg, thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure. Good to see you, Gleaves. Well, so how are your students at Black River adjusting to the remote learning? Well, we are now four weeks uh, dismissed from class. And, and of course, uh, classes are, are closed for the rest of the academic year. And uh, that's, that's, a, that's a tough question. I, I think the students, uh, with their routine uh, greatly disrupted, um, this is new for all of us. And it's not just schools closing, but of course it's um, compromised health for lots of people around the state. It's compromised uh, employment and careers. And uh, there's just a whole lot of unknown that we're asked to uh, respond to um, right now. And, and I think anytime that our routine and the familiar is, uh, is disrupted and changed, that's, that's a challenge for all of us. And it's a challenge for young learners. Um, I work primarily with, with ninth graders. And so they have enough of a challenge this year. They're beginning their high school program of study. And that brings about all kinds of anxieties. And uh, when you lay this uh, uh, last month on top of that, um, it's really tough. But as teachers, we're trying to, to be comforting and supportive, and we're trying to help reinforce routine for students uh, currently through online learning. Well, we wish your entire community well as we go through this uh, sequestering during the pandemic. Well, one of your favorite books to teach your students is Shakespeare, The Merchant of Venice. And uh, I would like to know when you first encountered the play. Well, I, I read Shakespeare throughout high school and had a good experience. I, I read it through my, my university studies. And uh, when Black River opened for the 1996-1997 academic year, um, the faculty was encouraged to, to read Shakespeare at each grade level. And um, after listening to what the English teachers wished to choose, um, I was very happy to see that Merchant of Venice was uh, not chosen. And so I, I seized upon that for my history classes. Um, one of the strong components of the play is uh, Elizabethan England at the time of exploration, where we have lots of traveling along the oceans and, and trade and joint stock companies are forming. 
and individuals are asking themselves, how can we amass enough capital so that we can invest in, in shipping and bring back goods from around the world? And uh, I thought that was a fine element to bring into European history and world history courses. And so, um, yeah, I've been working with this play for many, many years, and I've enjoyed reading it with my students. And we usually begin the year with this play. Well, speaking of Elizabethan England, please tell us about your background. Yeah. Your background uh, there visually. We're, we're in a different time zone. We're about five hours in, ahead of you. Uh, but what you see here is the, uh, the reconstructed Globe Theater. And um, I have not been to this, uh, to this spot. Um, I was in London in 1995. And all you could see at this, uh, 1993, and all you could see at the time was a large green wall um, surrounding this construction site. And uh, when you read the placards, it said, you know, coming soon, the reconstructed Globe Theater. But now, of course, um, the theater has been open for many years. Um, and uh, you can, through online uh, resources, you can, you can watch plays and you can, you can attend these shows right now. So it's a, it's a wonderful resource for the people of London. Thank you. And this is where the Merchant of Venice was presumably put on. Yeah, we, um, we know very little about the early uh, production history of this play. Uh, the play we think is written around 1596. Um, the Globe Theater opens in 1599. So um, uh, it, the, the early uh, the production history is not all that clear to us, but uh, we can still imagine uh, the, the type of theaters that were available during this time or were shared similar features and uh, and yeah so we can kind of imagine the scenes being performed in, uh, at the stage here behind me. Well you were talking about your students earlier and their struggles to adapt during this pandemic. Um, this play speaks to student anxiety and concerns. How does it do so? Well um, it, it does so immediately um, when you uh, uh, begin to hear the play. And I think we want to think of these performances as events that we hear rather than view. We're so used to watching things today. We're, we're watching something right now. But in Shakespeare's time, people went to listen and to hear a play. And uh, if you are in the theater, uh, the first character to walk out is Antonio. He is our merchant of Venice. And uh, listen to the opening lines. In sooth. I know not why I am so sad. It wearies me. You say it wearies you. Now I caught it, found it, came by it. What stuff tis made of, whereof it is born, I am to learn. And such a want wit sadness makes of me, I have much ado to know myself. Now Gleaves, if I may just put you on the spot for a minute. Um, what do these lines say to you? Well, melancholy can have many sources. And it you know, could be, when you look at the context of the play, it could be uh, unrequited love. Uh, it could be uh, the frustrations that come uh, when people are learning about themselves. This is what we do in the liberal arts, you know, we realize that our melancholy arises sometimes when we do not understand ourselves, our reaction to other people and our environment as well as we want. Um, and it could also be something about the economic conditions of the time or about the economic anxiety 
that this play is filled with. How did I do, Professor? It, well, I think you did very well, and, and uh, I, I elicit similar comments from my students. I think this is a wonderful opening passage for a play because the audience now has this driving question of why is Antonio so sad? You know, is it economic? Is it, is it love interest? Is, it can be all of these things. And, and this gives us something to watch for and to listen for throughout the play. Uh, what makes Antonio tick and why is he so sad? Um, I think this is very appropriate too for high school freshmen because uh, I'm not saying that they're all sad, but certainly they're very anxious. Uh, they're beginning a very important program of study. And I tell the students up front, um, I don't know what you are going to be asked to know four years from now. Uh, uh, curricula, programs of studies at universities and colleges probably are going to be doing a lot of things in different ways four years from now. And uh, I don't think uh, teachers know exactly what that is. And I don't think parents know exactly what that is. And so I can understand if you're somewhat anxious uh, beginning your high school studies. And, and so right away, I think we can identify with Antonio. And, uh, and that can encourage kids to kind of watch his story. And, and uh, what's really interesting is in act one, as it goes further, Antonio is surrounded by his friends and his friends are, are concerned. They say, well, what's, what's wrong? Is it, is it money? Is it love? And he says, no, no, no. Um, and then some of the, the buddies sort of shrug their shoulders and say, well, if it's, if it's none of these things, you really don't have much of a reason to be too sad or too anxious. And some of them skip off to dinner. Um, well, his best friend remains. His best friend is Bassanio. And uh, Bassanio has a love interest. And Antonio does a very interesting thing. He, rather than focus on his problems or his uh, uh, preoccupations, he turns to Bassanio and basically says, how can I help you? And uh, this, is a, this is a really cool um, passage. Um, if, you, if you listen to the lines, I am to learn. Antonio basically is saying, even though I'm anxious, I'm not going to throw a pity party. Um, I'm gonna work through this. I'm gonna to try to figure out um, why I'm so anxious or why I'm so sad. I think this is a very constructive response to, to, to a feeling, to an emotion. And I think our young kids can do a lot with this. The wisdom of great literature. Mm -hmm. Well, let's go in a similar vein through several passages. We have talked about this play before. We've talked about some of our favorite passages in it. Let's go next to Act 3, Scene 1, in which Shylock gives his famous oration where he says, I am a Jew, hath not a Jew eyes, and so forth. Please give us the setting, the context for that. What's going on there in these famous lines? Yeah, by this point in the play, um, Shylock has enacted a contract, and um, uh, Antonio has borrowed uh, 3,000 ducats. He has to pay it back in three months. And as a kicker on this contract, sort of as, at the end, Shylock says, let's just, I don't know, for fun, uh, throw on the contract. If you don't pay me back, I'll owe I'll be entitled to a pound of your flesh. And then there's quiet. This is not something that's typical of contracts. And we talk a little bit about uh, what it's like to take out a mortgage at the bank. And ninth graders don't have any experience in this. And 
uh, we, what we say is if you're if you go to the bank and and you ask for money if, if the banker puts something like this into the contract you should probably just quietly walk out um, but Antonio seems to be very confident that his ships will come in that he'll have money and he'll he'll be liquid again uh, so he takes the contract but it seems as though there are some problems that maybe the ships won't be coming in and a couple people turn to uh, Shylock and they say, you really wouldn't go through with this, would you? You wouldn't take a pound of this flesh. And Shylock gives us uh, this monologue, which is maybe the most recognizable portion. Um, if you listen to, to what he says, um, half not a Jew eyes, half not a Jew hands, organs, dimensions, senses, affections, passions, fed with the same food, hurt with the same weapons, subject to the same diseases, healed by the same means, warmed and cooled by the same winter and summer as a Christian is? If you prick us, do we not bleed? If you tickle us, do we not laugh? If you poison us, do we not die? And if you wrong us, shall we not revenge? If we are like you in all the rest, we shall resemble you in that. If a Jew wrong a Christian, what is his humility? Revenge. If a Christian wrong a Jew, what should his sufferance be? My Christian example, revenge. The villainy that you teach me, I will execute, and it shall go hard, but I will better the instruction. When we present this passage to students, um, they see immediately the argument here that yeah, why should some things apply to some groups of people and not others? Um, Shylock's argument is, hey, I'm a person just like you. And yet it seems like some sections of society can get away with, with some items and I cannot, and that's not fair. And ninth graders are very quick to pick up on this notion of fairness. And they, they think immediately that Shylock has an airtight argument that he is right, and immediately our symphony, go, uh, symphony goes to him. Um, but as we think about this a little bit further, um, this is probably not a good argument. And um, this is not what it means to be, uh, to be human. Um, this is basically a response that any other species would give. Uh, the animal world would give such a response. But um, within humanity, we are called to follow uh, a different course. And so at this point, immediate, uh, initially students might say, I feel for Shylock. But then over time they say, you know, even though he, he seems to have a, a good argument, his argument is not one in support of humanity. And, um, and he, will, um, he will suffer for this. Um, we need to rise and we need to be better than the other species. And uh, Shylock is choosing not to do so in this passage. 
Well, you unpacked a lot in five minutes. That's, that's really a, a remarkable way of comparing us actually to uh, very conventional morality and how we're called to, to be better than that. Well, what about, uh, let's go now to another famous scene in act three, scene two, where Portia gives her, her talk about, oh, love, be moderate. What's the context there? What's she saying? Yeah, the, uh, what, what's going on in this scene is, is Portia, uh, early in the play, has received news that her father has died. And now it's time for her to, to take a spouse. And um, she, too, is very anxious. She, too, is kind of bummed out. And uh, the reason for that is she has to choose her, her future husband by a particular method. Um, her deceased father has willed that Portia lay out three boxes, one of gold, one of silver, and one of lead. And suitors are to come in and select the correct box. And when they select the correct box, uh, they will be allowed to take Portia's hand in marriage. Uh, one of the boxes in gold, and there's an inscription saying, if you choose this box, you choose what everyone desires. The silver box is inscripted with, if you choose this box, you choose the box that everyone deserves. And then the leaden box uh, has the inscription, if you choose this box, um, you are to hazard all you have. And so as these suitors come in, um, this is a big choice, right? Which one do I choose? I really want to marry Portia. She is so smart. She is so wealthy. She is so beautiful. Um, she is basically the bachelorette. And that's what we have in these different scenes. And um, this, the, the scene that you refer to, her love Bassanio has arrived, but Bassanio must play this game. And she's hoping that he makes the right choice. And um, he's, he's thinking, he's like Winnie the Pooh. He's kind of doing his think, 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 think <laughs> trying, to, trying to work this out. And Portia is saying, you know, you don't have to choose right now. You can take your time. You can tarry a little bit. And as she's providing all this wonderful wisdom and advice, um, basically he turns to her and says, shut up, woman. I want to play the game. And, and Portia's uh, responds, I think, with, with some anxiety because she's like, oh, no, he's going to be just like every other guy. He's going he's to choose the wrong one. And, um, and basically she says, well, if you're not going to listen to my good advice, maybe if we just let music play in this room, uh, it might direct you to the correct choice. And, um, and, and sure enough, um, by taking some time and thinking through things through, Bassanio was a little bit of a blockhead, chooses correctly. And as he's choosing, Portia offers these words, oh, love, be moderate. And to me, I, I tell my students, you know, Shakespeare wrote a lot of words. I think these are the four most important words that Shakespeare wrote. Oh, love, be moderate. Because if we follow these words, we might be putting ourselves in a position to choose correctly. We might be denying ourselves of what we might choose, and we might try to be putting ourselves in this position where we can make the proper choice. And sure enough, Bassanio uh, chooses correctly. And so I think it's very important to point out this passage and uh, in these four words, and I am prepared uh, uh, for some reaction 
in that uh, can these four words be the most important? Um, I have not found this. This is not part of any other scholarship. This is sort of my, my own finding. I'd like to, to have that argument and I say, give me four other words that might be more, more important that Shakespeare wrote. But, oh, love be moderate, I think uh, is a passage that we want our students to think about. And of course, to the ninth grade mind, there's nothing moderate about love. No, no, and, and we can be distracted by a great many things, but and it's wonderful. We should be swept away with these emotions, but there's more to this than being swept away. And that's why the, the Leiden box turns out to be the correct box because love is not just I win, but love becomes, oh, now I have to change to make this work out and to be successful. And that's what this is all about. How do we change ourselves within changing routine? Um, uh, that, that's, that's what a match is. It's not about reaffirming who we are, but it's how are we willing to grow anew in our love for someone else? Beautiful. If only all of us got, uh, say, the prenuptial counseling that had that message in us. Okay, well now let's go to act four, scene one which I think presents one of the most powerful polarities in the play between, you know, justice and mercy. And again, this is Portia and the quality of mercy talk, the speech. So what do you do with that, Greg, yeah, uh, in the classroom? Yeah, again, this is just a wonderful, wonderful scene. This is the climactic scene, the court scene. Is Shylock going to get his power in the flesh? And he thinks he is. He, the law is on his side. If the judge rules against him, uh, what's at risk here is all of Venetian society, because Venice is a society based on law and based on contract. And Shylock feels he has a, an airtight case. Well, who arrives? Uh, the lawyer uh, for the defense. And it is Portia disguised as a male lawyer. So one of the really cool things here is uh, the smartest person in the whole play is Portia, a woman, and I make sure that we point that out. I think this is Shakespeare's greatest character, a woman, uh, based on what she does. And she turns to Shylock and she says, you have a, uh, you, you have a, you have a good case here, and, but I'm gonna ask you yet again, do you want the law or do you want mercy? And um, Shylock is insistent that he wants his contract. And then Portia gives us this wonderful monologue. And it's, you know, I, I have to commit this to memory at some point. I've committed all these other ones to memory, but I'll have to read this to you. But listen to the words that she shares. The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as a gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blessed him that gives and him that takes. Tis mightiest in the mightiest. It becomes the throne monarch better than his crown. His scepter shows the force of temporal power, the attribute to awe and majesty, wherein both sit the dread and fear of kings. But mercy is above the sceptered sway. It is enthroned in the hearts of kings. It is an attribute to God himself. And earthly power doth then show like us gods when mercy seasons justice. What do these words say? You know, kings are in leaders. The Howenstein Center is a center that, that develops leadership. What do we want to see 
in our leaders. It's not just a scepter. It's not just a crown. It's not just the power to rule. We want to see in our leaders mercy being enacted. And it's not just that we want to see mercy in our leaders, but we who are not leaders, we want to show mercy too. Because when we show mercy, that is probably the action where we are most godlike. This is, this is our, our demonstration of what is the right thing to do. And so mercy is the greatest thing that we can show. And she turns to Shylock and she says, do you want to show mercy? And of course, he, he denies her again. And, and from there, it's, uh, Shylock begins to lose. So this is, a, this is a wonderful, wonderful monologue that, uh, that students really like to, like to talk about. What would you rather have? law or mercy? Um, do you want your teacher to, to follow the grades or do you want your teacher to show mercy in, every now and then? And, uh, and then the, the ninth graders can say, yeah, I think mercy is probably a good thing. So, Well, this is remarkable, especially in West Michigan. This is Ford country. And I can't help but think back on the quality of mercy that President Ford showed toward his predecessor, Richard Nixon, when Nixon left office, you know, at death's doorstep, his, his physical health was so bad. But Ford was down on his knees in church trying to figure out how best to move the country forward. And it came down to a question between justice and mercy, and he chose mercy. And I think that was a tribute to Ford's great leadership. And I've never been able to establish the relationship between the Merchant of Venice particular uh, passage and Ford's decision, but they certainly resonate. That's a great, great comparison. Um, it, particularly if you think, as a historian will think, back in the day, this was not a popular decision that Ford made, and he was lampooned and ridiculed for this. And it's through revision, and when we look back now at Ford, we say, what a remarkable act of wisdom. That he that he demonstrated here, yeah, it, that's that's a very very nice comparison. As the John F. Kennedy Foundation said, it was a profile in courage, and it certainly was that. Well, Greg, let's move now to uh, another great scene, Act Five, Scene One, and this is Lorenzo speaking. Yeah, um, Act Five, um, you know, after Act Four, after the courtroom scene and Shylock loses, uh, basically we we sort of think, well, the, the play's over. What else do we do we need to have here? Um, Act five consists of one scene. Um, it's in Belmont, and uh, eventually all the characters are going to come back to Belmont, and we're going to have our resolution here. Um, and, and some people look at it as a throwaway scene, and, and, and there's a little caution there because there's this beautiful passage um, where Lorenzo is looking at his love, Jessica. Jessica is the daughter of, of Shylock, and she's left Shylock. And the two of them are watching over Belmont until Portia returns. And, and they're sitting here under the stars. It's a beautiful night. And they say, you know, when you think through history, all of the great uh, lovers and demonstrations of love and caring, and they, they go through history, they go through mythology, and they name all of these. And Lorenzo does something very sweet. He turns to Jessica and he says, you know, and I'm, I'm just really fortunate because I have you here with me, Jessica. It's, it's, it's such a tender scene. Um, but there's this wisdom that, that Lorenzo gives us. And, and Lorenzo really is a, is a nobody. He's, he's not an important person. But uh, the words that he, that he offers here, um, I used to think that this talked only about music. 
And there's a lot about music in, in this passage, but I think it's about much more than just music. Um, the, the passage, and there's some, some masculine words here, man, but this applies to everyone. Um, Lorenzo shares, um, the man that hath no music in himself, nor is not moved with concords of sweet sounds, is fit for treasons, stratagems, and spoils. The motions of his spirit are dark as night. His affections dull as Erebus. Let no such man be trusted. Mark the music. Now, if I was a, a music teacher, I would take that and put that on every t-shirt and make sure all of my musicians were wearing that because it sounds like such an affirmation that we should learn music. Um, but what is being said right here? Um, we can do pretty well um, in, our, in our daily life, but we will grow and learn when we are willing to open ourselves up to other ideas, other suggestions. We look for those opportunities to become better than we might otherwise be without this help, without this assistance. And this is such an important um, passage to consider. Um, we can't do everything all the time by ourselves. Um, we need to open ourselves up to that good counsel, to that good advice, and uh, the, the types of uh, emphasis that we get from works such as merchant events, or last week from um, the, the Odyssey. Um, we can become better people. And this is what learning and growing is all about. Um, we can become better people when we open ourselves up to something new. Thank you. That, that is a wonderful explication of the music. And I remember uh, in college, I read Charles and Cressida, and there was, a, there was a passage in there about the music of the spheres and the harmony uh, of music. And I think that you're alluding to that as well as I listen to you. We got some questions coming in, Greg, and I'm just fascinated. I think this will be our youngest viewer that has submitted a question from Matthew, and he's from Hudson, Ohio, and he's asking you what would be the best first Shakespeare play for a nine-year-old. For a nine-year-old, well, I'd have to uh, ask my daughters and try to go back in time. I know a play that we had some success with, uh, Twelfth Night seem to capture the attention uh, and imagination of, of young learners. And there's so many wonderful vehicles uh, that you can work with, but uh, Twelfth Night, Matthew, might be a really good choice for you. Oh, that's, that's great. Okay, Matthew, I hope, I hope to hear from you how Twelfth Night goes for you. <laughs> okay, here's a question from an anonymous attendee. How will the closing of the school this year affect the curriculum for students coming into a new grade next year? Will works of Shakespeare, such as The Merchant of Venice, be cut or will they be emphasized even more? Yeah, um, it, it, the reality is we have uh, 10, 12 weeks um, where we're not meeting face-to-face -face with students. And, um, and this is one of the, the discussion points that teachers are uh, exchanging right now is, uh, you know, how do we think about material that we're perhaps not covering? I know in my case, the 20th century has taken a big hit. And, um, but it, it, specifically with Shakespeare, um, I, I intend to, to, to launch next year with Merchant of Venice, again, at the beginning of the year. I think this is a, a very important work 
uh, to read at the beginning of eighth grade for, for the reasons that we've identified. Um, one of the things that we're doing right now with online learning, um, I've directed kids to consider uh, Charles Dickens' um, Tale of Two Cities, and I've given them some material that they can work with. And then we use the opening, uh, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. And I, without uh, doing spoiler alerts, I try to have students identify how might that be a good passage to think about what we're going through and experiencing today. And uh, the responses that I've gotten from these young learners are just really, really cool. They, they, they're, they're talking about, you know, we have all these wonderful blessings, but at the same time, we have these challenges. And perhaps this is what Dickens is getting at in, in Tale of Two Cities. So we, we're trying our best not to, uh, the humanities, I think, will not be compromised. I think something like math and foreign language takes a harder hit because you have some objectives here that you're not covering as intentionally as you, as you would otherwise. We've got a question from Aaron. He asks, at times the Merchant of Venice is blatantly anti-Semitic, but also buried within it, as you pointed out, are more tolerant messages such as the Shylock monologue. How do you navigate this dichotomy in class? This, this play is labeled a problematic uh, play for, for the reason that, uh, that Aaron shares here. Um, today we think a lot differently about uh, diversity than was the case during Elizabethan England. If we went back to Elizabethan England 400 years ago, um, what would we see? Um, we would see a very homogenous society. Um, we would not see an anti-Semitic society. Um, I do not find enough evidence to suggest that Shakespeare would be an anti-Semitic writer. I don't think it's there. Different times um, uh, existed. And I know that when we produce the play today, we have to prepare ourselves for such uh, responses, and, and they're important to address. Um, they're there, um, but I think um, if we treat this play historically, um, I think it's these, these other issues that uh, will become emphasized. In fact, it, it, the Christians don't all uh, come out well in this play. Um, in the court scene, uh, Ashian, who's one of the friends of Antonio, does not show real good Christian uh, morality because he's very excited that um, uh, Shylock will be punished, maybe even executed. And um, that does not show well for, uh, for Christianity. What do we know about Shakespeare's personal religious beliefs? Um, we know very little about Shakespeare. We know so much about his plays, um, but we, we don't know um, what made him tick. Um, we just don't have that information. And there's probably no individual in history that we talk about so freely and so often without knowing a, a lot of strong details. Um, we know that um, there was a suspicion of Catholicism um, at, during, his, during his time, and, and that would be an angle that, that we would develop. Um, there's a lot of Protestant uh, messages that, that his plays seem to be advocating um, I suppose the context would be one, Elizabeth in England is, is suspicious of papacy uh, and more willing to embrace uh, Protestantism. Eliz Queen Elizabeth herself could not uh, 
tip, tip her hand. She had to walk right down the middle. And that was a, that was a big challenge for her as a leader in her day. So Shakespeare, you're suggesting, had to live very carefully. He had to write very carefully. I think so. And I think artists, artists do that. They have a license and, and they can present some things on stage and let them play out. Um, but I, I don't find the messages in Merchant of Venice uh, ambiguous. I, I think when we look at, um, it's, it's important for us to learn um, why we're sad, why we're anxious, particularly today. It's important for us to think of things bigger than ourselves. Mercy might be more important than the law. And then of course, allow music into your life. Allow other things into your life that will help you make, make decisions uh, that will make a, a quality of life for you and those around you. That actually segues to another question. Anonymous asks, you've spoken a lot of anxiety within the characters. What lessons of coping with and overcoming anxiety can we take from this play as many of us, students and adults, feel overcome with anxiety in these uncertain times? Yeah, uh, if the driving question is, why is Antonio so sad? Um, how does he end up at the end of the play? Uh, at the end of the play, you have three couples. You have Portia and Bassanio, uh, you have Lorenzo and Jessica, and you have Graciano and Nerissa who's a maid to, uh, to Portia. You have three happy couples, but then you have a seventh character on stage. You have Antonio, who doesn't seem to, to have a partner. And um, the message that he gets at the end of the play is his ships, in fact, did come in. So he is solvent and he has money. Um, and so even at the end, Antonio um, seems to have weathered um, this uncertainty uh, of his capital coming, coming back in. Um, we have to do the best uh, to, to understand our anxieties. And it comes right out in these opening lines. Um, I am to learn. Um, I'm not going to throw a pity party. I'm not going to isolate myself in an unhealthy way. Uh, we are all isolating ourselves right now. But the healthy way would, would be to find ways to connect with others. And this is just a, one wonderful resource that the Howenstein Center is providing. This is our attempt to connect with others at great distances. This is what we do. This is what humans do. We need to connect, um, but we can't isolate ourselves and say, oh, woe is me. I'm going to strike out um, at, at, at others. That is the error of Shylock's ways. He, he chooses to, to strike out. He does not deal with in, in a human way. Thank you, by the way, for the plug for the Hallenstein Center. I really appreciate that. Greg, is there anything else you would like to say about this play that you think is absolutely essential to understanding ourselves as humans in times of economic anxiety or anything else? Well, one thing I'll say is I've enjoyed reading this play for now 24 years, and I get uh, great relish when I can walk down the halls of the school and I can look at former students and I can point to them and say, what is the opening line to Merchant of Venice? And they know it. And maybe in ninth grade, they could not articulate um, the importance. And maybe it was very confusing. But what I find is students are willing to say, you know, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I, we, we, we direct the kids to continue to think about this over four years. And I, agree, I, I get a great deal of satisfaction. And, uh, I'd like to see how kids attempt to compare this play to, to other uh, topics that they're currently studying in their curriculum. 
This is a play that sticks. This is a play that young, young uh, students can work well with. And it's a play that can help them grow. There are so many lessons here to teach and it's, it's wonderful that we get to work with such, such wonderful material. What's your next favorite play by Shakespeare? Uh, I think that's, uh, um, it, it depends on, on, on what's going on in the community. I know Grand Valley does a wonderful job in the fall of hosting a Shakespeare festival. And over the years, we'll, we'll bring our students to the festival. And, and, and I'd like to see what the local universities, what the local colleges are staging and, and allow that to make, to make choices. Um, I suppose one that I've read with students over the years that I, that I really like, and if you wish to connect it to uh, you know, the, the gravity of the, the hashtag MeToo movement, um, Measure for Measure um, provides a lot of the same uh, problematic questions as uh, Merchant of Venice does. And, and, and I'm, I'm very intrigued with that play and, and students have responded very well to, Merchant, uh, to Measure for Measure as well. Very good. Well, thank you, Dr. Dykhaus, for sharing your love of Shakespeare and inspiring our listeners. It's been a real pleasure to speak with you this, this afternoon. Join us the same time next Thursday when my guest will be Nate Gillespie. Nate is a 2015 alumnus of our Peter C. Cook Leadership Academy. He will tell us about an inspiring civic effort he is spearheading to help our community deal with the coronavirus pandemic. Till Thursday at 1 p.m. Stay tuned and stay well. Thanks for watching. Beyond Aporia is a podcast brought to you by the Hauenstein Center for Presidential Studies at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Hauenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. The theme music was composed by Andrew Whitney. The Hauenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Hauenstein's legacy of leadership and service. Our programs address many of the pressing issues that Americans face. To learn more about the Hauenstein Center, please visit us at www.gvsu.edu hc. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. This is Gleaves Whitney.